genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Hellboy from the Hellboy comic book series. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest, John Dorowski. Welcome, John. Thank you. Glad to be here. And I'm very glad to have you on to talk about Hellboy. Uh, Do you remember when you first became aware of Hellboy as a character? Um, Not exactly. It was kind of general awareness as started getting into comic books probably first encountered it in wizard magazine um but i didn't read up on the character at all until the first movie came out yeah i think i'm probably pretty similar where i kind of became aware of the character just through um you know that that kind of pre-digital comic book media you know things like wizard magazine um or seeing the character uh pro- probably would have seen some of the characters or, or comic books at a comic book store but never really um pick- picked it up and read it um and then there was a lot of buzz about the character when the first film was coming out um first of three so i mean it's a, it's a popular enough character that he has uh, been adapted several times and everything like I heard about the character was intriguing. Um, I just never have like committed to digging into it. Be- I, I maybe in part because there's so much that's there. It can be a little bit intimidating to uh, try and first step into the comics. Um, well, and I've read a few and I've always enjoyed them. I just haven't really, you know, I, how long is the run? Do you know off the top of your head, how long the actual uh, run is? The actual Hellboy comics. You, uh, I mean, you have a lot, but it's, it's actually readable. They and they keep putting out mild and new editions, so they're really accessible. So it's about fourteen volumes on that on just Hellboy. It's once you get into the ancillary material and spinoffs that it gets really massive. Right. Yeah. Because it, it, um, Mike Mignola is the uh, creator of of Hellboy and now of a fairly expansive uh, universe, shared universe of um, the Hellboy characters. Um, these comics are all published through Dark Horse, and there's the Hellboy line of comics, and then the spinoff with BPRD, which is the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Development. And then there have been mm. a few other... Defense. Defense. Sorry. <laughs> Not, sorry. R&D. Always want to go to research <laughs> and development. But it's, uh, yeah, research and defense. Uh, and then there are um, several other characters have had miniseries or spinoffs, correct? Yes. Yeah, so um, Hellboy first appeared in 1993, and uh, the world in in which Hellboy exists has been in fairly consistent uh, exploration through the comic books um, once the Hellboy um, series itself uh, began. So it's Hellboy itself is run as a series of miniseries, so it's a little sporadic mm-hmm. on, its public, on how much is published and when, uh, but a little bit after, well, actually around the first movie in 2002-2003 is when they started expanding the line and then it became kind of every month you had multiple titles of some sort for several years. It's, the main story has recently come to an end. The big, massive Like Apocalypse. Store. Hey, yeah, Hellboy and his yeah. role in the Apocalypse is the main. Yeah, right. that's recently come to an end. But they're, uh, 
they had some other miniseries that were exploring the history of some characters. And I don't think they've announced anything recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know exactly where it's at. But, you know, there's a 25 year run that Mignola built and managed. So, you know, it's a life's work. Yeah, no, and it's extremely impressive. And it has a very dedicated audience. I mean, in the world of comics, if it's not selling, the publisher will stop, uh, you know, mid-story, as many comic fans have discovered to their dismay. So for Dev um, had this long of a run, I, I think speaks to um, both the quality of, of the work and also its ability to find that audience, because also, you know, not everything that's published that is of quality finds the audience. And Hellboy um, is one of those success stories that is a story that's outside of the big two publishers, Marvel and DC and outside of kind of the established lore of um, the, the corporately owned characters where, where the corporation will have like the, the incentive to keep pushing these characters and keep telling stories with them. Hellboy was creator owned and, um, and a, a completely original uh, character that was launched in uh, the mid nineties, which if you know your history of the comic book industry, mid nineties, not a great time to be <laughs> launching. <laughs> well, actually, a very good time to launch stuff, but being able to cut through that noise and survive, right? Because through that, there, there's is a really impressive for the comic book industry coming in the in the late '90s. Um, that is going to wipe out uh, a, a lot of small publisher, uh, you know, many publishers besides the big two, um, and wipe out a lot of the comic book stores that had become very popular in in the early '90s. Um, there, there's a like just within the history of the industry that the late '90s is a pretty rough stretch. And so for Mignola to have launched this character and then have it carry through successfully, I think speaks uh, a lot to um, his dedication as a storyteller and as an artist, and then also the quality of the work that he's putting out. Um, John, you pulled up a whole bunch of trivia about Hellboy. And since you're the one that pulled it up, do you want to share that with us? Sure. So Mike Mignola was already established in the comic book industry when he uh, started Hellboy. He had drawn several comics for both DC and Marvel, notably inaugurating the DC Elseworld series with Batman Gotham by Gaslight. And this is where they reimagine the characters in different time periods or with different powers. It's a little uh, similar to Marvel's What If, where they're, yeah. they're going to be telling non-continuity stories. But Marvel's What If stories always had a launching point of an actual moment in the accepted canon of Marvel Comics. Where like, okay, if, if this one storyline had happened different, what would have been the result? And and so like, it's a pivot point. But if you were a longtime Marvel reader, like you knew the whole story up to that one moment. But DC's Elseworlds were more... Um, reimagining uh, characters whole cloth into into like a, a new uh, continuity and whole new world entirely. And so like the Bat- Batman uh, Gotham by Gaslight is imagining Batman in kind of a uh, Victorian era town fighting Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Yeah. Jack the Ripper comes to Gotham. Mm-hmm. And so late, eight, late 1800s. So very different setting and characterization. Uh, and have you read that one? I have. It's a uh, very well done. Well, uh, this is also Magnola really at the height of his corporate powers where um, he could have permission to do that sort of thing in right. free imagining character. Yeah, I haven't uh, read it for, I, I don't know, uh, over a decade for sure. But I remember very much enjoying it when I did read it. Yeah, it's a great reimagining. Well, it, it launched a whole line of these Elseworld stories. So that says something. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also drew a Rocket Raccoon miniseries for Marvel. And this was back when... Rocket Raccoon was not a character. Was he the creator of Rocket Raccoon? I think <laughs> no. I've heard that, but I'm not sure if that's actually accurate. No, I did look that up. Um, 
I think it's Bill Mantlo and uh, Giffen. Okay, Keith Giffen. Yeah, Keith Giffen. Uh, created the character in the 80s. Kind of had this one miniseries and then disappeared for 15 years. <laughs> and uh, was brought back in a Guardians of the Galaxy relaunch, which then led to the movies. Oh. And now Rocket Raccoon's a, a massive character. Yeah, and has had some more miniseries since then. <laughs> yes. And uh, before Hellboy was published independently, he uh, Mignola pitched the concept to DC Comics, uh, who liked the idea but didn't want uh, uh, a title involving Hell. And I imagine this was uh, a few years before they started the Hellblazer right. title. Uh, uh, well, either that or they didn't want a DC superhero title with the word Hell in the title. Yeah, uh, yeah. if it was being pitched was to DC proper, yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I guess we, I, I, I'm sorry, I kind of omitted the breakdown of who this character is. What is the hook for Hellboy? Uh, if, if you said they were interested in the concept, what is the, like the elevator pitch version of Hellboy? Uh, the elevator pitch would be that Hellboy is the beast of the apocalypse, but he decides to fight to protect mankind instead. So he's a demon, like, he looks like a devil, like like red yeah. skin, red, red skin. horn. Well, um, shave, shave down horn, so you have these nubs on his forehead. If you yeah. see the movies, you you know that image. He, uh, does, he, does, he does, does not trail. like his horns. <laughs> and uh, a big stone right hand. Mm-hmm. The hand of doom. Yeah. So he's supposed to bring about the apocalypse, but doesn't want to. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's your elevator pitch. You know, you have your uh, drama right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've, you've got um, a, a nice snapshot of a character and then a motivation that's going to drive the story all right there. Yeah. Uh, so Mignola seemed to have been developing this idea for a little while um, in the early 90s. He did some sketches of a Hellboy character, uh, gradually getting to that point of the image we have now, uh, where he appears fully formed in San Diego Comic-Con Comics number two in a brief story, and then in John Byrne's Next Men uh, before launching into his own miniseries. The first miniseries, Mignola didn't feel confident about his writing, so John Byrne scripted it off of Mignola's story. Um, and then after that, Mignola took over the writing. And he's written all the Hellboy stories, uh, but hasn't drawn all of them. At a certain point, he realized he was just a little too slow on the drawing and had a little too much on his plate with all the editorial work. That he was doing because because he, he even the uh, as, as we start to get some of those spinoffs, he's still guiding the whole universe. Um, oh yeah, he got he's guiding the whole thing, um, and always consulting on the stories. And so yeah, he got very busy on that end of stuff. And so uh, in the early two thousands, uh, there was like a three year gap between Hellboy proper stories, uh, and he kind of said, "I realized I had too much on my plate. I couldn't keep drawing Hellboy and." writing and doing all this other stuff. And so he started giving some of the art duties over to other people. But all through the nineties, he was writing and drawing all the work. Um, one of the stories we're going to discuss Hellboy box full of evil won the 2000 Harvey award for best artist. And the next main series Hellboy conqueror, conqueror worm in 2002 won an Eisner award for best limited series. And that seems to be all the awards, which seems Way too few awards for this work. Yeah, it was a little unexpected. Uh, that, yeah, that it was only only those two. Yeah, this is a kind of a in in comics a legendary prop, property, and Magnolia is recognized as one of the masters of the craft. 
of uh, art, artistry, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah, he has uh, a very distinctive style. I mean, <laughs> I, I, if you listen to our comics episodes, we've we've run from uh, Jeremy Bastian in Cursed Pirate Girl to Scotty <laughs> Young in Wizard of Oz, and now Mike Mignola in uh, Hellboy, and they all have like non-traditional superhero like when you think of comics you think of like the traditional superhero stuff none of their art looks like that um and, and but they're all very distinctive from one another yeah and it's not just that his style is so distinct but uh his sense of pacing and craftsmanship um works really well for these types of stories and we'll get in more into that but it's like he really should have have should have a lot more award recognition he has all the recognition in fandom and in uh among other comic book artists, uh, well recognized as one of the masters, but doesn't have the seem to have the award recognition for it. Uh, as Joe mentioned, there have been three Hellboy movies. Additionally, there have been two animated movies, two video games, and several novels. Interestingly, Mignola does not ascribe to the theory of transmedia storytelling, where all these stories belong in one universe and help build the character. Each genre is its own universe. And so the films don't affect the comic books, which don't affect the novels uh, and vice versa. So you can pick up any of them and have their, their own storyline through them. Uh, and you wouldn't need to know about the other stuff that's come before or after. I, I, I think particularly for the film adaptation, that that's a good attitude to have. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's, it's impossible. I, well, it's very unlikely to pull off something that fits seamlessly and would be appealing to both the mass audiences and core fans, you know, something like that. Uh, that that's just going to slide in and be a chapter in the story of Hellboy, um, you know, which at the point that first film came out in 2004, I think it was. So the saga had been going for a decade, um, basically. Uh, and just to slip in like a fresh story that would work uh, as a standalone for mass audiences and advance the stories in the comics, that seems very unlikely to be able to pull off. Or kind of like the X-Men films from that same period where, the X-Men films were doing the own, their own thing, but all that style got reflected in the comic books and the characters dressed like that and had the, those voices for a little bit. Right. Uh, yeah. They brought in all the black yeah, leather they, costumes. Yeah. And that none of that happened. Uh, all the style from the film was in the film. The comic books didn't adapt it or take the uh, tone of the films and bring it into the comic books so that people would be familiar. Uh, they let them be their own thing. I enjoyed those first two films. The, They're uh, great. Guillermo del Toro directed uh, Hellboy stories. Yeah, he was. He's very much the right director to bring Hellboy to life. Mm-hmm. I I haven't seen the third one, so I can't say. I just know that it wasn't well reviewed. Wasn't well reviewed. The trailers did not make me interested in seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> like that. That was about that. Um, all right, well, before we move on to the summary of the stories that we're going to be discussing, and John selected, uh, because you know Hellboy a lot better than I do, you selected several um, kind of self-contained, uh, either very short stories or like issue-length stories of Hellboy for us to discuss. Yes, and I'll, I'll explain that reason why in a moment. Yeah, uh, but before we get to those summaries, we want to thank you for downloading this episode, <laughs> listeners, and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special podcasts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the uh, media we've been consuming lately. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Uh, so, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, short stories or uh, single issues that you have uh, selected? Right. So, 
a little background on this. Um, I'm using Hellboy as part of my dissertation research, so I've read uh, most of the Hellboy proper works, uh, though I'm only focusing on the first few. And so when you asked to do Hellboy, I was very excited. I'm like, oh, like, which miniseries to pick? And I was like, oh, not, let's not do the first one because that was scripted by John Byrne, so it's not quite the Hellboy that we know. And I looked at some of the later miniseries, and I'm like, there's a lot of sto- story and character impact here that we spent half the episode explaining about this intersection of Christian mysticism and Greek mythology and <laughs> Russian folklore. I'm like, I don't want to spend the half the episode trying to just explain the context of the story. I want to talk about the characters more. So I picked some of the short stories that uh, summarize the the characters and the overall Hellboy mythology, not the everything they're drawing upon uh, that I, that really resonated with me that I remembered uh, even after months after reading them, they still stuck with me. So, and, and, and well, uh, for me, this was the first time I read most of these, and they just felt like everything I expected a Hellboy story to be <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of yeah. uh, the tone and also the pastiche of mythology uh, and the the kind of um, Lovecraftian and Poe esque tone of both the art and the the narrative itself that felt like it was uh, lifted from like Gothic romanticism, uh, but layered in with with some other genres at the same time. Yeah. And we'll certainly discuss all the influences. Uh, I thought that these ones were accessible on that level without again, having to bog down in all the references that he's bringing in Uh, quite well is masterfully done how he weaves all these uh, elements together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so also in the publication of history of Hellboy, uh, it tends to alternate between miniseries uh, some long, some short, uh, we're gonna have some two issue miniseries here, but also some one-off stories that appeared in other publications. Uh, so to start off with the little backstory on December 23rd, 1944, Rasputin, yes, that Rasputin and the Nazi occultists of project Ragna rock perform a ritual to summon a demon. The Nazi high command expected a miracle that would turn the tide of war. Instead, Rasputin set in motion the end of the world. The infant demon appeared in an abandoned church in England. He was claimed by the United States, raised by Professor Trevor Broom, and named Hellboy. Pancakes. uh, From the 1999 Dark Horse Presents Annual. And this is just a two-page story. So you get all sorts of lengths of stories here. 1947, New Mexico. A young Hellboy tries pancakes for the first time and loves them. In Pandemonium, the capital city of Hell, demons wail because now the boy will never return to them. Astaroth, Grand Duke of the Infernal Region, declares, truly, this is our blackest hour. Um, I love this short story a lot, and I'm sure we'll get back to it, but just uh, the idea of like the, the push and pull between Hellboy's like demon nature and the demons wanting him on their side, and then uh, the you know the nurturing side of the humans who have raised him and want him to be a good person. But the idea that it's it's pancakes is really going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and like dictates which side he's going to choose is just fantastic. Well, it's also the contrast between the mundane and the fantastic, right? That it's you have the shot of Hellboy trying pancakes and saying, "I love it," and then you're cut directly to hell. <laughs> <laughs> so. Almost Colossus, 1997 two-issue miniseries. So this features uh, a homunculus that Hellboy will, at the end of the story, named Roger. 
Um, and I will use that name throughout for convenience and clarity because there's also another homunculus. So in the previous miniseries, Wake the Devil, pyrotechnic Liz Sherman discovered a homunculus and brought it to life by giving it her fire. Now, due to the loss of her flame, she is fading away and dying. Hellboy and Professor Kate Corrigan investigate the disappearance of the recently deceased from several graveyards in Transylvania, where the coffins have been dug up and broken into by hand. The locals inform them that three days ago, something broke into the church and carried the big cross into the mountains. At the mountains, Roger prays to God for its destruction, believing that in stealing Liz's fire, it had killed her. But then it is confronted by a masked figure claiming to be its elder brother, an earlier experiment that had been tossed aside. But it willed itself to live and later confronted its creator, killed him, and stole his secrets. This brother has been working to create more homunculi in the belief that they are the future and should rule over mankind. The locals guide Hellboy and Kate to their most haunted place, the monastery of Capitaneni, where the monks once perpetrated the foulest abominations and filthiest excesses before being burned alive. Now, strange lights have been seen accompanied by the smell of burning flesh. Inside, Hellboy and Kate find a giant metal wall, like a six-story oven. Suddenly, Kate is pulled upwards while Hellboy is dragged down by a group of homunculi. Once Hellboy escapes, the skeletons of the monks guide him out of the catacombs. The elder brother reveals his plan, a giant homunculus of metal bones covered in molten human flesh to be their new body to dominate humanity as a god of science. Before Kate is tossed into the fire, Roger rebels and rescues her as Hellboy makes his entrance by breaking through a wall and tossing a stone at Roger. The elder homunculus takes control of the giant body and attacks. It beats Hellboy until Roger offers to join its brother. Once inside the giant, Roger uses Liz's fire to destroy it. Roger survives and wants to be left alone, but Hellboy reminds him where it got its fire. They arrive at the hospital to find Liz has died. Hellboy declares, listen, nobody's dead around here until I say so. You hear me? Nobody. Roger gives Liz back her fire, bringing her back to life, though seemingly at the cost of his own. The BPRD promise to see what they can do to help Roger. The Right Hand of Doom, 1998 Dark Horse Presents Annual. Malcolm Frost, one of the people who witnessed Hellboy's arrival in 1944, spent the rest of his life trying to convince the U.S. government that Hellboy was too dangerous to live. Malcolm's son, Adrian, meets with Hellboy and shares a note from his father referring to Hellboy's stone hand as the Right Hand of Doom. Hellboy tells his life story, showing that he has already rejected his fate as the Beast of the Apocalypse. Adrian explains that the stone right hand is the key to opening the bottomless pit, meaning Hellboy is still burdened with the responsibility for the end of the world. Box Full of Evil, 1999 two-issue miniseries. Hellboy and the fishman Abe Sapien investigate a theft, where the thief used a hand of glory to immobilize the residents while he broke down a wall to steal a metal box and iron tongs. The home was once a convent of St. Dustin, a blacksmith who trapped a devil with iron tongs and sealed it in a box. The Count and Countess Guarino, giving their souls to Satan, prepare to open the box. Very the cavalierly, is- by the way. Yes. They're just very, very... They are, they are ready to go. Yep, yep. Yeah, just, my soul belongs to Satan. Yeah, yeah, open the box. <laughs> the Countess asks that the devil take a form that is not too terrible, while the Count wishes for enough gold to lie down in and a crown for his head. The devil comes out as a fly that then possesses the Countess, who turns the Count into a monkey. The thief, Bromhead, wearing the protection of St. Dunstan and knowing the name of the devil, is then able to take control of Uelak. Bromhead desires wealth and power. 
Warlock tells him there's treasure hidden in the cellar, but that with the right hand of doom, he could release the Adru Jahad, as well as control the lifeless soldiers of hell in order to declare war on heaven. When Hellboy and Abe arrive, the monkey shoots Abe as Bromhund uses Hellboy's secret name, Anung-un Raba, to take control of him and transform him into his demon form with horns and a crown of fire. Warlock claims the crown, while Bromhead proceeds to beat Hellboy. Warlock fashions St. Dustin's tongs into a sword and prepares to cut off Hellboy's stone hand. At the crossroads of death, Hellboy is asked if he is Anugun Rama, destroy world destroyer, the great beast, and upon his head is set a crown of fire. Hellboy says no, and Bromhead no longer has control over him, allowing Hellboy to fight back. Abe is being tortured by the monkey, but breaks free and tosses the monkey into the hidden treasure. The Count dies lying on a pile of gold with a crown on his head. Abe confronts the fleeing Bromhead, tearing the talisman of St. Dustin. Despite being warned beforehand, Bromhead calls upon Astaroth for rescue, only to find himself in a sealed room and turned into a lizard. Hellboy breaks off his horns and stabs Uelak with them. Uelak attempts to flee as a fly, but is caught. Astaroth arrives to claim Uelak and the Crown of Fire, telling Hellboy the crown will be waiting for him in hell. Later, after Abe is safe, Hellboy confesses to Kate Corgan that he lives by never dealing with who he really is, though he knows he can't ignore it forever. Uh, thank you, John. I think that was a really good selection of short stories to kind of uh, share a lot of the themes that um, I, I believe are present in Hellboy from what I've read about it. And you know, because you've, you've read more of it than I have, um, but you, you get a good sampling of um Things like the mix of the supernatural and science, uh, you get a mix of, as you said, like the mundane and the fantastic. Um, you get a lot of the, the thematic pools of um, individual choice versus uh, inherent nature. Uh, so, so I think you, you get a good encapsulation as, as you uh, kind of run through these short stories. Yeah, and you get the key points of Hellboy's mythology, not necessarily all the world building that Magnolia has done, but you get the through line about, uh, uh, about the end of the world and such. Right. They, you know, that that's what this is all building to. And um, you said that that storyline had recently concluded and with 20 years of stories, I mean, there had to be points where people wondered, this is gonna be one of those never ending stories. So it's, it's kind of fascinating that we actually do now have bookends on, on Hellboy after uh, 25 years of storytelling. Yeah. Well, I get the sense that, uh, so within the volumes that I have, uh, Magnolia provides some brief commentary about each story throughout. And it seems like he has had the idea of where this was going to end, but it kept developing and got bigger and bigger as he went on. And so he kept changing the stories at some point, but he still had this ending in mind from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, you had mentioned that you wanted to touch on some of like, the foundational concepts that Magnolia is drawing on and, you know, that he's pulling in for this. Um, some are pretty clear. Um, like Poe is heavily featured in the, uh, the box full of evil with references to um, the house of usher being explicitly made within the story. I don't think you, you covered it in the, in the uh, recap, but it's, it, it gets name dropped point blank. You have the cask of Montiato with someone being uh, built into a wall. You've got a killer monkey from uh, murders in the room Morgue. So it's really like there's a lot of Poe that's being pulled in, in that one. Yes. And uh, also in the first miniseries, uh, they go to a place that looks exactly like, uh, the house of Usher it's built on a lake and it's sinking into the lake. It's, they don't call it the house of Usher there, but it was clearly referencing that. 
And throughout the whole storyline, uh, you have the strong foundation of Poe and of Lovecraft. You have a lot of cosmic horror, the Audru Jihad that I mentioned. Uh, they're in a prison in outer space waiting to be released. And uh, you have these Lovecraftian monsters that will come eventually. But you also have uh, Greek and Roman mythology, Christian mythos mysticism, British and Russian folk tales are all heavily influencing this work because, you know, Rasputin brings in Baba Yaga and uh, Hellboy, uh, several storylines down, is found to be the heir of King Arthur. And so you're bringing all of these pre-existing mythologies together, which allow for uh, almost immediately world, immediate world building. So you enter the story and you have a sense of, oh, right, this world's already built. It's familiar. Uh, we just need to get used to this new take on it. Right. And, and and I think it's kind of interesting to see like what is pulled in and highlighted from each of these because um, all those mythologies and folklore and uh, the authors that we've referenced, like there's um, there's more to them than what gets highlighted in the, in the Hellboy uh, version of it. And I think that's where some of the fun can, ha uh, can exist in uh, this genre bending kind of postmodern horror you know the gothic gothic horror um that is going to lean into some steampunk elements it's going to lean into like you said the love lovecraftian like horror of creatures but then you get the atmosphere of poe um and and uh and lots of the um like the moody evocativeness of that gothic uh storytelling sensibility and so what i i've seen in this work is that this is kind of what Mignola imagining what comic books would have been like if the superheroes hadn't come along. So this is not just all those uh, gothic and horror works. It's also a lot of pulp influences. In fact, they have a character named Lobster Johnson, who is a pulp hero. Is he, is he, uh, is he a private-eyed, hard-boiled character? <laughs> yeah, uh, though he is costumed. Mm. So he's the, the 1930s version where they started taking on costumes, but still being those hard-boiled types. Right. Uh, fighting against gangsters. Uh -huh. And so it's like, what if you just took all those pulp influences that were coming into the comic books in the late thirties until Superman came along? What if you said, all right, Superman never happened. What would comic book stories have been like? And then you get this world where it's all these pulp influences and uh, the 1930s universal horror films, uh, almost Colossus clearly references the James Whale Frankenstein several mm -hmm. times. Right. Uh, so, like, what would comic books have become without the superhero coming into existence? Uh, though I will argue that super or that Hellboy acts like a superhero in a gothic world. Oh, oh, very much. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, you, there's still a very large superhero influence on, uh, you know, the, the character. I mean, just even the name Hellboy, you know, is <laughs> evocative of uh, the superhero naming conventions that we have. But then, in the way, like. Uh, the team is built and the there's the pseudo governmental side of it, but also not, which is a classic like tension in, in superhero comic books. Like how official is this group operating in this function? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you, you can feel a lot of the um, influence of someone who, you know, grew up reading uh, Silver Age Marvel and DC uh, is, is coming in uh, on the, well, I guess silver to bronze age, uh, and and then had actually like operated in that world as a successful artist for both Marvel and DC comics. Um, I, I think the influence is 
um, inescapable, but also you, you can find it in there, even as the, the overwhelming feeling is of that kind of gothic horror. Yeah. Um, how would you describe Mignola's art style? Because this is something I'm trying to dig into more when we talk about these, these comic books, um, particularly because we've had so many of late that are driven by uh, like unique and definitive artists where like you look at it and you know you're looking at it, uh, where they are like auteurs in terms of how their vision is going to be shared. Like when you look at a Scott Young or a Jeremy Bastian or now a Mike Mignola uh, piece of art, you, if you're loosely familiar with uh, comic book artists, you, you can point to them and say, oh, that is, you know, that artist's work. Yeah, uh, it is. It has a rough hewn texture. So you feel like almost like these are chiseled out of stone, these figures, especially the right hand of doom, <laughs> but it, you have a real feeling of texture, which you don't often get where everything, where the, a lot of times artists want smooth lines and fluidity. And here you have weight and uh, roughness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's also like a, a simplistic angularity. He's not going to be spending time on lots of details the way like a Jeremy Bastian or on excessive lines, the way a Scotty Young uh, does like there's uh, and when I say simplistic, I don't want it to ever sound like that's a, a you know, I'm not complimenting it. I think it's a, it's a deliberate choice in a style uh, that he's going to use for this that allows for a lot of very heavy shadows, but it's not like shading shadows where it's like transitioning like in a gradient from light to dark. It is, if there's a shadow, it is a block of black uh, and there's yeah. lots of blocks of black uh, with different angles and, and shapes to them. But it's, it, the shadows are always just pure black in, in the Hellboy universe. Yeah. And so Mignola drew and I believe inked these, but it was Dave Stewart on colors and the colors are so important to setting this mood. Well, and it, it's a very muted color palette, uh, like like desaturated, uh, a lot of blues and and kind of uh, greens and grays. But that, but then with Hellboy, is always bright, bright red. Uh, you know, in yeah. the midst of it, it so he st always stands out. Yeah, he's always popping in every panel that Hellboy is appearing because the, all the other colors are these desaturated, cooler colors, and then there's this very hot red um, that that is that is Hellboy. Exactly. Now, I, I do want to say that. He says it's not a lot of detail. That is something that comes into the artwork more as the series goes on, but not in the characters themselves, mm -hmm. but a lot of the backgrounds or he'll, Miguel will draw like a panel, uh, not to add to the story, but to just help set a mood. And I'll just do this ornamental panel and you'll have more details in those. And so like the end of the right hand of doom, you end with a left hand long panel and then on the right side of the page is just this uh, kind of sculpt sculptural motif mm -hmm. that he drew. And you get the details there. Um, so it's something he experiments with as the series goes on, but never adding to the stories themselves, just background stuff. Yeah. And, and I, like I'm, I'm just flipping through the art right now. And it's, it's kind of fascinating when you start to look at things like the panel structure it's never repeated. It feels like, I mean, I'm sure there must be, but, but he's very um, willing to provide unique panel structures, but he's so careful with his craft that you never get lost in the, in the panel structure layout, which in comics is very easy when artists are breaking away from the classic nine panel grid or a variant thereof with the nine panel grid uh, for the left to right up and down panel layout to become confusing for the reader where they don't know which panel that they're going to go to. I don't remember ever running into 
any issue with that in reading these stories by Mignola. And I'm flipping through and I'm seeing lots of variations in terms of number of panels, placement of panels, um, how they get stacked. But in each one I look at, there's a very natural eye flow, which is so important to allow the reader to stay immersed in the story. Because even that half second of which way am I supposed to go? You're out. You're done. <laughs> like, like you've been completely removed. Yeah. And that layout is so important to the pacing of the story. Um, this is part of what makes Magnolia masters, not just uh, the art in the panel or the page layout. It's how the size of the panels uh, give time. And there was a, a couple of ones that reading through it this time, I was really impressed with how they paced it. So in the box full of evil, it's a very simple three panel structure, but it was like a perfect storytelling. Abe says, is that a monkey? Hellboy shouts, it's got a gun. And then you have a shot of the hel- of the monkey shooting. Okay, I stopped and looked at that panel like three times in yeah. this comic. <laughs> and it's just uh, it's the, an example of perfect storytelling. You have the pacing. You have you know three beats of a story. The monkey is pointing the gun towards Abe mm-hmm. uh, in the panel structure. So you have the flow of action all laid out right there. Yeah. And uh, you get like the big uh, onomatopoeic uh, words, blam, blam behind the gun as it's being fired. And that one has a yellow background, which the rest of the this page has been that muted blue gray background. And so then to have that one panel with yellow, you know, just makes uh, like, like you said, there's the pacing that comes of the short panel, short panel, big panel. But then there's also color, color, you know, muted color, then uh, a close-up of Hellboy's red face screaming he's got a, a gun. But then the next panel, it's it's a, a sea of yellow with the monkey really in the lower right-hand third of the panel, but with the giant white block letter, blam, 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 above the monkey. But mostly you see the yellow there. Uh, and the monkey stands out because it's the dark against the yellow. But it, it like for the page itself, uh, like the color choice is also um, affecting the, the pace of the story and, and what we take in. And it, it gives kind of a, a quick shock value to have uh, that that yellow introduced into the muted color palette. Well, it's not just that yellow. If you look at his Abe is a blue color. Uh, he's amphibious fish. I said fish man, but he, uh, don't think mermaid. Think actual fish man. A creature from the Black Lagoon. Kind yeah, of. creature from the Black Lagoon type, except blue. Right. So you have blue. Abe's blue. <laughs> Hellboy's red, and then you have the yellow panel. Mm-hmm. So that that color progression as well across the I would just really struck me reading it through that this time of how perfect that sequence was. Right. And um, this in talking about the storytelling in the, in this one, this short story with the the monkey with the gun, uh, (laughs) uh, uh, that one is the box full of evil, right? Yes. Um, That had for me, a really good like revelation or a character moment about Hellboy, which I've seen similar things done in some other stories where like the, how the character thinks in themselves is their true name, not the name they've been given. So, so in the case mm-hmm. of Hellboy, he has his demon name, and that is what uh, Bromhead uses to control him at first. He he uses his demon name to bind him, uh, and then there's this flash of Hellboy. I'm not sure exactly who it is that he's talking to in that in that flash when he. It's a reference to a previous story. <laughs> okay, yeah, but he, he's talking with someone else who's kind of it, it seems like kind of a a, a wizened mage, uh, you know, figure who's going to offer uh, bond moths that that maybe will help Hellboy, but also are still riddles wrapped in enigmas. Uh, but he kind of walks Hellboy through the the re- uh, realization that um, the demon name, his true demon name should not bind him because that's not who he is anymore because he has rejected that name and he is 
Hellboy, the the human name that he's been given. Yeah. And I should say this is like the second or third time he's rejected <laughs> that name and that role. <laughs> right. I mean, my sense is this could be a fairly recurring uh, theme in, in each miniseries. There's going to be some acknowledgement that he has a role in the apocalypse that he is turning away from. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I, uh, and then once he realizes that his demon name is not actually his true name, it should not have the power to bind him. That's when he is able to rise up and fight Brahmed. Exactly. Um, I just, in terms of like going, circling back to that elevator pitch of like, he's a demon meant to bring in the apocalypse, uh, but he doesn't want to, um, I can think of at least two other characters that are similar to that off the top of my head. So you have angel from the Buffy uh, the Vampire Slayer universe, and then there's uh, oh, what is his name uh, from uh, Good Omens, the the demon half of of Good Omens. Um, I, I can't remember his name, but but why do you think that's the kind of character that? Uh, I mean, there's different tones in each of those: uh, Angel, Buffy, and and uh, the novel, and now television miniseries of Good Omens. Why do you think that's a, a kind of character that we seem willing to? Uh, turn to or authors seem to kind of want to explore i think there's also one in the, in the supernatural tv series uh, you know demon i would not be surprised yeah, de- demon <laughs> who wants to wants to be a good guy or, or doesn't want to be the bad guy anymore um wh- what do you think is kind of uh fascinating to us about that well i think you you mentioned this earlier about the contrast between nature and nurture um because we have our you know we have our habits and our set ways and they're think, and almost everyone has something they want to change about themselves. Uh, and this, these stories resonate because they're saying, "Yeah, you get to choose who you are. You don't have to be defined by uh, your family, by the habits you've developed over life. You can change and be who you th- want to be." Yeah, I like that. And I think there's also, uh, from a storytelling perspective, you have such immediate tension, right? And uh, Exactly, because it's the human condition. Everyone right. experiences this. Mm-hmm. And, and there's the, the push and pull of, uh, you know, something that feels innate to them versus the, you know, the, the desire to be a better person. <laughs> the, well, I, I should say everyone experiences this. It's just that these stories uh, magnify it to a cosmic scale. Right, yeah, the... the <laughs> the existence of humanity hinges on these characters choices in, in these stories, you know, in, in uh, the, the kinds of stories we're talking about. Um, and, and those are just some of the characters that I'm familiar with that fit into this mold. I am sure there are many others in book series or, or other comic books. Um, or, well, I mean, well, we're thinking about Marvel comics as several characters that are kind of fit into that mold as well. Um, so, so I'm not, I'm not trying to say Mignola is like derivative of this. I just think it's kind of fascinating as a, as a character type to see, uh, you know, recurring so often and sometimes with different levels of uh, comedy or uh, horror attached to them, depending on how they're going to be approached. Uh, but it's something that audiences seem to accept as uh, an, an interesting character type. Well, I, that's, one of the reasons why I chose the story almost Colossus for white resin is that Hellboy sees himself reflected in Roger that Rogers, this creature who didn't choose to be made, didn't choose to uh, be forced to live by stealing someone else's power. Um, and so he tried, he's not obviously, but he does want to help Roger make right choices of like help him realize his potential to be the best homunculus he can be. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm assuming Roger comes back there. Oh yeah. BPRD is, is able to, to work with Roger again. <laughs> yeah. He becomes a staple of the BPRD series. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the two page story pancakes, um, <laughs> which 
I know this story because on the iFanboy podcast, they have referenced it several times as one of their favorite comic book short stories. And I know at some point, uh, one of them, I'm not sure if it was Josh Flanagan or, or Connor Kilpatrick, but someone had been able to talk to Mike Mignola about this. And Mignola was kind of baffled that anyone liked this story. <laughs> it, was like, <laughs> it was such a throwaway. Uh, and, and he knows that for a lot of the audience, this has become like one of their favorite Hellboy stories. And he doesn't, it, Mignola himself doesn't seem to quite understand uh, the love that it gets. Um, or at least that was the report I remember from one episode of, of iFanboy. I love this story. Uh, so I'm in the, <laughs> I'm in their camp, not the Mignola camp. Of, well, it, it's that perfect encapsulation of, you know, Hellboy is supposed to be this scary demon who's coming to destroy the earth. And this mundane thing changes him and says, no, I, I love pancakes. I love earth and humanity. I want to protect them. And that huge contrast of the modernity of this, <laughs> this gruff looking army sergeant who's the cook. Yeah. Well, and this uh, is Hellboy when he's two. So he's drawn as kind of like a toddler devil. So imagine... Uh, young child devil and uh, with, with a giant right hand giant right hand horn at this point he sells the horns because he's making the choice to, to pull off the horns or shave them uh, and then as you said like this military man drops pancakes in front of him and he's like he's like that, that no I don't want that no way I don't like pa-. and he calls them pam cakes with an m I don't like pam cakes and the the RA, uh cook is like you have never tried them before just try them and he's like, they're yucky and the so, you know he's like one bite open and and like the, so the military uh, you know, figure is is like doing the feeding a parent to a child, like the open up, yeah. open wide, ah, and, and shoving the pancake in. And like so much about these beats, it just feels so bizarre and strange, but charming. And, and I don't know how, how you're able to like capture all of that. Uh, but the, the demon child, the military figure, the parent child, t- the toddler refusing the food. And then, as you said, like the cutting to hell where the demons are like, <laughs> no, he ate the pancake. He's never going to return to us because pancakes are going to bond him with the human world so much, essentially. Yeah. I mean, that is a, your summary is right there. It's just a perfect encapsulation of the primary drama of Hellboy, this contrast not only of the mundane and the fantastic, but in Hellboy himself of the human and the demonic. Right. And I mean, this Twitch story, like we've referenced several of the, uh, the uh, foundational texts that you can see Mignola is drawing on for mythology and for tone and style. And um, like that first page is green eggs and ham. Pretty much. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, in two, in two pages, you go from green eggs and ham to the divine comedy. Yes. Yes. And, <laughs> and the fate of the universe, right. That has been decided. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that's the core appeal of, Hellboy is these tensions of, like I said, the demonic and fantastic versus the mundane and the human. Uh, what is he going to choose? But as we see in the series, he's also been at this for a long time. You know that that pancake story is nineteen forty seven. The rest of these stories took place in the nineties. So he's got a forty year history of battling evil and demons. And so you have this uh, character that part of the appeal is not just that tension, but also uh, his kind of blase attitude towards the fantastic, this world weariness about it, that he's been there and seen it all before. Yeah. Um, and when I think about um, particularly like the film version of Hellboy, like that is like all the line deliveries feel like the, the like, I'm just kind of tired of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's already tired. And then he learns that he has this destiny as the beast of the pocket, which is, and, 
you just feel that weight pressing down on his shoulders more and more. And that's uh, the end of the right-handed doom story, which is just a summation of the story so far. And uh, it's Hellboy exiting a church and he just goes, right-handed doom. What a life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just... and, well, and like you had mentioned how like there's so much of this that is pulp uh you know drawing drawing from pulp storytelling you know from the the 19-teens and 1920s style and that world-weary uh private eye detective um you can definitely feel some of that seeping into uh how like it, it's kind of like oh what a case and you know tomorrow there's gonna be another case <laughs> for him yeah, there's and, well, a... and, he, and he wears the trench coat so you get some of the visual <laughs> uh you know the... alignment with that too Yes, I forgot about the trench coat being such a key aesthetic choice of taking the place of the cape of the superhero. So you can still have that fluttering effect, but it brings in all those connotations of the detective and Hellboy uh, is referred to and refers to himself throughout these series as the world's greatest paranormal detective. Well, and there's very much in terms of how the the lighting and the shading that we've already touched on, like it, it does feel a bit, a bit like film noir where, um, you know, the, the blacks are so black in, in film noir. And, yeah. uh, you know, even though they had the technology for color, like it's, it's, it's often, those are often done in black and white. And this is, um, you know, that the, the shorthand for a lot of uh, comic book coloring is like the, the bright four color, <laughs> you know, and, and the primary colors of superhero costumes and the secondary colors of, of uh, supervillain costumes are so often um, like very saturated versions of those colors. And everything is so desaturated in the world of Hellboy. Yeah. You get the feeling like they, uh, when they did the coloring, they just put black all over everything and then built colors on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that world weariness, there are two great examples that, uh, one of also, which also has to do with the pacing of the uh, art, but in the box full of evil, there's uh, when they're in the graveyard at the beginning with uh, Professor Kate Corgan. And that's another great contrast where uh, you have the sense that Hellboy has seen a lot and all his knowledge comes from experience. Whereas you have Professor Kate Corgan who up to this point had never been in the field. She's just researched folklore. And so you have this, t- that good contrast of uh, someone who's has all the book learning, someone who has all the street smarts, but they, in this case, they never play off of who knows more. It's always uh, this uh, sense that they do, that they are actually real friends. And they respect each other. They, they yeah. respect each other's knowledge. It's not like, Oh, you don't know. Cause you have book smarts, which is a entire trope uh, yeah. in, in a lot of these uh, types of stories. And so they're, when they're talking to the locals in the graveyard, Hellboy just casually says, I don't think it was vampires. I was here for that in 69. <laughs> <laughs> and this isn't the same. Uh, but they're, just before the locals show up, uh, they're talking about why would someone steal all the corpses from a graveyard? And Hellboy says, you know, they could be hungry. It could be lonely. <laughs> and, and Kate just goes, you're kidding, right? And a big white panel just landscape shot you know silence and then he cut back to hellboy and goes i've seen some funny stuff <laughs> and that just that pacing of making sure that middle panel was bigger so you had that sense of time yeah um the oh let me make sure i get the story right um because we've touched on box full of evil uh right-handed doom and uh uh, and pancakes a bit, but yeah, we were just in the almost Colossus um, one a bit more. Um, and that's where we see uh, Kate like lo- or Liz losing her fire. Right. Um, yeah. 
And she was not present in these stories as much, but I know from the films, they present her as one of the core characters of Hellboy. So I just wanted your sense of who Liz is as a character. Well, that's actually one of the interesting things on the commentary that Mignola provides just before the almost Colossus story is he says that in his original plan, he was going to have Liz Sherman die in that story because he didn't know what to do with her. Mm. And uh, another creator came along and said, no, she's great. You can't do that. You have to keep around and it convinced him to keep her around. And then in the notes, he says, and this other guy has to re- draw the Sherman story now. So <laughs> great for me too. <laughs> do you know um, who it was? I don't recall off the top of my head. I think it was, I think he says it was an animator for the Superman cartoon at the okay. time, something like that. Um, so actually Liz doesn't have a big role in these stories. Uh, in the first story, she's along for the mission, but, ends up kind of as a damsel in distress. Uh, And even though she saved herself in the end, uh, that's kind of the role she falls into. And then in the break the devil story, just before this one, she's on a side story from the main story that Hellboy is on. Mm -hmm. They have to investigate several castles. And so, you know, the classic setup of everyone go, you know, split up, go each of you go investigate one of these places. And so she ends up with the one where they find the homunculus. Um, but I was very impressed in almost classes of how well they drew her fading away. It wasn't that she was dying of anything. She was just losing spirit and that careful line work and color work, especially in the, the middle, since it's two part of this is kind of in the second part where she's kind of turned gray and she's always has this uh, cigarette uh, since she, she uses her firepower to light them. And the, this close-up of the cigarette falling from her lips. And just that that is all the symbolism you need to understand that she's fading away completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also one of the other characters that, again, in the in these short stories wasn't very prominent, but I know Abe Sapien is a very important figure in the Hellboy universe. And I think he's carried a couple of miniseries. Is that right? I know he had his own series for oh, a while. his own series? Okay. Yeah. That must have been what I was thinking of. Uh, if you were going to try and nail down who Abe Sapien is, uh, how would you describe him? Um, again, we don't get a lot in these stories. He is as tough as Hellboy and that he endures a lot, but he's not as strong. And he, at least at this point, isn't weighed down by destiny. Mm-hmm. We get the, that comes up in his own uh, storyline later. Uh, again, going into the whole world building mythology that uh, Miguel has where, uh, you know, it's not just that Hellboy's going to end the world. It's also about what comes next. And uh, Abe Sapien is a precursor of what humanity could turn into to survive the yeah. end of the world. Um, all right. Well, and So it's like all these little things are planted here uh-huh. that just get exploded later on. Right. And, and when he's able to, I, I mean, one thing I think by publishing with, with Dark Horse, um, he was able to tell the story at his own pace. And I think it's really impressive to see um, kind of the long form story, uh, you know, that was given all, all that room to breathe across, um, you know, decades uh, and yet is contained, right? Like, like it is what it is. Like he's told his Hellboy story. Yeah. Um, before we finish up, I do want to, uh, touch on Roger the Homunculus, uh, who doesn't appear in the films yet. Who knows what's going to happen in the future with the franchise? Um, but I, I really was impressed with that almost Homunculus story. 
with Roger. Like I said, he's Hellboy really does see himself in Roger and uh, sees uh, this person who has all this potential, but ha- needs to make the right choices. And Hellboy's not the best teacher. Uh, like when at the end, when Roger says he just wants to be left alone, uh, Hellboy yells at him, like, remember where you got your fire. You need to take responsibility for this. And so even though it's not the best teacher, it's the right lesson. But I also want to mention uh, that, like I said, Magnolia at the beginning wasn't confident in his own writing and John Byrne did the first script. By uh, almost Colossus, Magnolia is pretty confident. That elder brother has some soliloquies. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, when it comes to writing and scripting comic books, it's so much isn't getting uh you know the words out to tell the story it's it's having just the right number of words to tell the story because there's so many limitations in caption boxes and word balloons um are you revealing character and advancing story in each one of those and um as you've described a couple of beats like are you allowing for comedy to to be built in like comedy of pacing and comic panels is something that i don't think is um natural for a storyteller you've got to like really put some thought into into how to develop that. I think um, by this point in these ones that we're reading, Magnolia is um, really capturing uh, the what could be the strength of the comic medium in that combination of art and limited text um, because of uh, the space, just the space that is allowed on a comic book page. And um, I've read comics from lots of different eras, like it ebbs and flows as to like how many words is a standard. Um, certainly there's very wordy periods. Um, and, and in the last, 10 years, it's been a lot sparser in terms of the amount of dialogue or text that you would see on a page. But I'm very, uh, like everything about the Mignola choices feels right for the telling of this story to me. Yeah. And the, like with that elder brother, he has this very Victorian style of speech. And so when he starts, talk, starts talking, you immediately get a sense of the character and this rhythm mm-hmm. of speech and where he's coming from in this st- just in this style of writing. Yeah, and I think there are good distinctive voices that belong to Hellboy. Like, there's lines of dialogue that you know that's coming from Hellboy, even if you don't see the word balloon tail going to Hellboy, because you've gotten to know that character so quickly. And same with Abe Sapien. Like, (laughs) you can pretty quickly get a rhythm for what Abe Sapien sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, so Magnola obviously had these characters pretty well defined in his mind. They developed as he was writing them more and more, but uh, even that first series, you see all the potential that existed that he had all these ideas planned out well john do you have any final thoughts about hellboy before we wrap up this episode uh no i just recommend it uh read the comic books watch the del toro movies those are the other one i don't know (laughs) we haven't we haven't seen it (laughs) you know i've i've heard uh david harbour actually is very good as hellboy Uh the story might not meet up with the acting choice but uh that there might be something worthwhile in there. And I will say um, one thing because of the nature of the Hellboy comic book line versus something that's a little more sprawling, like, you know, the Superman comic books or the Batman comic books. I have seen Hellboy on uh, several library shelves where I think it's a little easier to say, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to stock the Hellboy, you know, several Hellboy uh, volumes uh, in our local library where it, it might be a little more daunting to try and say, okay, we're going to stock some Superman stories. Okay. Which ones of these thousands and thousands are we supposed oh. to have on our shelves? Uh, but Hellboy, you can get, you know, the entire series in, is it like uh, 13, 14 volumes? I think is so 14 trades and then they keep republishing them in different formats. So you 
actually do have a library edition which which is only late. that one is they're cramming more like like two uh yeah two, two or three, three volumes per per library edition which means it's gonna end up only being six or seven mm-hmm. so there's a good chance you're uh, your li- local library may have uh, access to some of these Hello. And then they recently did a version where they separated it into the major stories and the short stories because the short stories don't always affect the ongoing uh-huh. plots. And so they, you can separate them out and uh, pick which ones you want to read that way. Um, but one of the nice things is that, you know, with about 14 volumes of the main story, you can sit down and read them all, not on all in one sitting, but it is all accessible. And really you could read the entire saga. If you commit yourself to it, it's uh, uh, no more than like reading all of Robert Jordan's wheel of time. Right. Well, you mean all like the BPRD and all the uh, Abe Sapien yeah. and, and, and those other series. Yeah. Like, so it is all digestible. You could commit yourself and read the entire saga. Right. Unlike, say, Superman, where it's not even all accessible. <laughs> yes, yeah, like you, you literally can't find many, many issues from the Golden well, and Silver Age of Superman. They, they all exist out there. It's, they haven't been republished or put online. Right. Uh, you'd have to put an effort just to track down some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an epicness to Hellboy, but there's also like a, an ability to grasp it that is appealing. Yes. All right, well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at DizMinute. And our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Testing, testing. Seem to be coming through loud and clear, Joseph. Joseph actually sounded very good tonight. Always do. Go for it. And do.